Hello and welcome to the Last of the Moon podcast. I'm Bryce McCracken. I'm Brett Redshaw. I'm Wyatt Van Dyke. And today we will be talking about the film 80 for Brady. Wait a minute. Here. Boo. Boo. Uh, in actuality, we will be talking about the movie Knock at the Cabin, which I thought was titled Knock at the Cabin Door. I was until- about to ask this. I <laughs> oh, okay. swore. <laughs> you just beat the shit out of the microphone. Because <laughs> you just screamed so much louder than you're recording this right the, with your face this, up into it. This was the first point I was going to make. Okay, we'll restart and then I'll come in much more composed. I just got so excited. Uh, well, I don't want to I don't want to lose that because it was a golden moment. Um, I'm sure I'm just just start talking about how you thought it was the same thing. Okay, don't. Please go ahead. Are we just going now? Yeah, we're going. Oh, well, I also thought that it was called that and was really bothered to find out that it wasn't called that. And I feel like I saw enough trailers that said knock at the cabin door. Yeah, I was like very confident that it was titled knock at the cabin door. Yeah, I'm. it's a real Berenstein situation. It's funny that we all had this mutual experience because I, too, or I, three, had this experience literally on the phone with Colleen saying where we were going tonight. I was like, yeah, we're going to go see this M. Night Shyamalan knock at the cabin door. They uh, should have just called it that. They I'm really sure, should have. I'm sure we're not the first people who have brought this up. Because, I mean, nobody has ever knocked at the cabin. Like, that would, <laughs> that's never a thing that you would say. Knocked, You're knocking at the door. Just knocking, knock, like, straight up siding of a home. Just no, rap, 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 rap. Go ahead. Knock in the general direction of the cabin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would make for. An excellent movie title. Um, at this point, at this point, should we? Okay, for context, we've had a really hard time getting started recording. We're getting started at almost one o'clock in the morning. We're reaching like delirium. Yeah. Should we just get high? And this then might be. <laughs> this might be an unhinged podcast, but uh, this movie was a little bit unhinged. So let's let's talk about it. Um. So, knock at the cabin. Is oh, I'm also as I'm type or as I'm reading right now, realizing I literally wrote in my notes that the title of this movie is Knock at the Cabin Door. So we're just <laughs> gonna delete that word and then move on. So Knock at the Cabin is M. Night Shyamalan's new movie, and you guys have very limited experience with M. Night Shyamalan, right? I mean, I've seen a few movies, I've seen Split, I've seen uh, The Visit. Um, I think I watched Signs, but I also might not have watched Signs. Uh, but I'm familiar with both him and the the tropes typically associated with his movies. Yeah, I am embarrassed to say this. I was hoping that it wouldn't get brought up, but now I have to talk about it. It's a guy with a movie podcast. I only have seen one M Night Shyamalan, and it's old <laughs> of all movies. Which a great I, film. I feel really, really passionate about the one movie of his that I've seen. It's uh, it's something else. It was. Probably our favorite movie-going experience of that year. God, if anything, I had a really good time. Yes. I've never... It's so unfortunate. It's so unfortunate to say this about a non-comedy that I've never laughed so hard in a movie theater. It was truly hilarious. Um, And I think that that speaks pretty well to M. Night Shyamalan's career, unfortunately. Um, I have... I've seen all of his movies, even his his lesser-known ones at this point. And I, I just want to take a second to to go through his filmography because it, it's truly a fascinating career. And I genuinely think that he is probably the most overrated filmmaker of the last couple decades. I think people look at his movies like The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and think, yeah, he's a great movie maker. And maybe they saw Split and were like, yeah, he's still making good movies, but that's really just not the case at all. So... His career started in 1992 with Praying with Anger. Um, This is a movie no one has seen, and there's no reason to ever see it. Uh, It was literally produced by his parents, like his parents paid for it. Um, Is he a nepotism baby? Yes. Oh, nice. Um, And then he made Wide Awake in 98. Most people don't count either of those two movies in his filmography. Praying with Anger because it's like a zero-budget movie, and Wide Awake because even though he wrote and directed it, 
it is not an original concept. But from that point on, we've gotten nothing but, for the most part, original ideas from the brain of Minaj Nelyatu Shyamalan. Um, I can't confirm that that was correct, but I believe that it, it is, was. It is. And he he after those two movies, he releases The Sixth Sense, which is, I rewatched it recently, a genuinely very impressive movie. It came out in 1999, and I actually, I mean, I haven't seen every movie that came out in the 90s, but I genuinely think it's one of the best movies of the 1990s. And he followed that up immediately with Unbreakable, came out in 2000. Another pretty impressive movie. It's not perfect. It's not nearly as good as the, as the Sixth Sense, but it's pretty good. He then followed that up with Signs, which is deeply flawed, but in general, a decent movie. He then released The Village, which was my first experience with M. Night Shyamalan. So my dad is a big M. Night Shyamalan fan, or at least he was. And so I actually think M. Night was probably the first director that I actually knew as a child in terms of, like, I could name this filmmaker. So he released The Village, which is, again, deeply flawed, but I think a pretty good movie. And then his career goes off the deep end. He releases The Lady in Water, horrible movie. The Happening, even worse movie. The Last Airbender, live-action version. Genuinely one of the worst movies ever made. After Earth, which... Brett just removed Wyatt's hat and threw it across the room. I'm not sure why that happened. Uh, He released After Earth, which stars Will Smith. And I'm pretty sure Will Smith actually directed that movie, even though M. Night is credited as being the writer and director. One of the worst movies ever made. He then finally reaches sort of like his contemporary phase with The Visit, a movie that Wyatt has seen. It's not horrible. It's just stupid. It's just scary enough for my mom to scream so loud in the movie theater that the people behind us audibly booed her. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I did not that know that. That is hilarious. He followed the visit up with Split, which I actually think is a pretty good movie. This is not the time to go in depth about it, but pretty good movie. He followed that up with Glass, which was a sequel to Unbreakable and created this like M. Night cinematic. universe, like cinematic universe. Glass is not a good movie. He released Old, a movie that I loved that was horrible. And so I was excited to see what mediocrity he would put in front of me with Knock at the Cabin. M. Night does this thing where he really relies on twists. The Sixth Sense uses one of the best twists in movie history. And he kind of just held on to that and never let go. Basically, all of his movies have some form of twist. And other than The Sixth Sense, most of them are bad. And I really hate a twist most of the time because it feels like a really cheap way to get people talking about your movie after the fact. And it rarely ever actually adds anything to the movie-going experience. I'm pleased to say this movie did not have a twist. And I think that leads us to actually talking about this movie well. Um, I guess that is kind of a spoiler. That's also debatable. I f- I have things to say. I don't about think this. it has a twist. We'll get into that after yeah. the spoiler warning, but <laughs> it has a reveal, which I guess some people might call a twist. I wouldn't call it a true like plot twist. There are a lot of classic M Night things on display here. It's a quote psychological thriller, which is what he calls all of his movies. It's got like religious motifs. He puts those in all of his movies. It's got Philadelphia at the center of the story. Which it's it's truly a shame. Yeah, go birds. They'll be competing in the Super Bowl this Sunday. You guys have no shame to say that as Steelers fans. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Certainly cheering for them over the Chiefs. Okay, I I, I, that wasn't me. That was Philadelphia Phil. He's from Puxatawney, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a shame that the only filmmaker that I'm aware of that puts Pennsylvania in every single one of his movies is producing these movies. But you see Philadelphia on display here. You see like a twist to some extent, I guess. But in general, and I would love to get your thoughts on this, boys. uh, I feel this movie was competent. I think it was more competent than the movies that he's made since Split, at least. I didn't walk away from this feeling like it was a particularly good movie. But 
it was fine, I guess, which I, it's not the feeling I want to have leaving a movie, but I'm going to see anything that M night puts in front of me because he has very loyal fans. And so people are always going to see his movies. They're always going to make money and there's always going to be something to discuss. And that's why I was at least excited to see this movie. But how did you guys feel about it? I generally speaking, agree. If I was a movie raider, I would say this just screamed a two star experience. The funny thing is with the, uh, the M night cinematic universe is that like, I totally agree. I'm always, if there's a new M night Shyamalan movie, I'm just, I'm going to go see it. But I feel like what often happens is the parts of the movie that are the worst and laughable, which happens a few times in this movie are, are probably directly his fault. And then the parts of it that are the best, like some of the acting performances, nothing to do with him, nothing to do with M night. So it's, it's very ironic, but you know, we're not here to just uh, shit on the man, but it's, it's an observation that I think can't go unsaid. So I, I will say before Wyatt gives his, his thoughts on the movie, if there's one thing that is pretty consistent across every M night Shyamalan movie, it's, he gets good actors and actresses to work with him. And more often than not, even in his worst movies, he usually gets pretty good performances out of them. I mean, he's worked with Joaquin Phoenix, Bryce Dallas Howard, who I love, not just because she shares my name, uh, Bruce Willis. Yeah. Uh, It's on my birth certificate, but I don't go by Dallas. Um, But like in general, a lot of his even worst movies have good performances. And in my opinion, that was a real standout for this movie, but go ahead, Wyatt. Uh, I agree with most of the points put forward. I think based on the initial reactions, I will be uh, serving as the resident hater of this movie throughout <laughs> the rest of this podcast. That is okay. Um, but I it mean, it was not that good. You're allowed to hate on it. At the same time, I do think that uh, Brett Brett's point of the things that went well seem to be out of M Night Shyamalan's control uh, is true. I feel like. They were dug a hole and then forced to dig themselves back out of it throughout the course of the movie. I did like some of the performances. I thought some individual characters were uh, highlights. It's worth noting that Rupert Grint is in this movie. My boy, Ronald Weasley. And it's so, I'm glad that he's in other things and like pursuing his passion. But the whole time, I'm like, that's Ron. Like He is so stuck in one character in my brain, which is probably why you don't see him that often. Uh, fun fact, this is the most logged Rupert Grint movie on Letterboxd that is not Harry Potter related. So this is mm. already his most popular movie that is not Harry Potter. That's a fun fact. Um, but overall, uh, this was a mid-experience. Uh, it was a $10 ticket. Which, speaking of, Bryce will Venmo you this after the after the podcast. Eight fifty, baby, you got that student discount. Oh, ho, ho, they didn't even ask me to see my ID. Let the record show, I'm not gonna Venmo you. I'm gonna fucking, I'm gonna take that money and run. <laughs> uh, do I think this was an eight dollar and fifty cent experience worth of movie? Maybe I don't know. That, that's fair. It's uh, gonna be how much interest do I get and how much entertainment do I get out of recording this podcast that really decides that if I just watched that movie and went home, I'd be a little upset on my money usage. Cause you can get yourself a real good oat milk, lavender latte for about that money. Uh, you could get one and a half. You and I are not going to the same places. It appears we are definitely going to the same that's, places. That's what DeFair runs you, baby. Uh, this is 50. Well, I'm, I'm on that employee discount. Uh, editor's note. Uh, we're talking about the coffee shop I work at. Either way, latte prices, movie, not a good time. Not a good time. If only this generation would stop buying <laughs> avocado toast. Gay coffee, they could buy a house. Uh, gay coffee is a great segue, Brett, to the main characters of our movie. 
<laughs> Dave Bautista plays gay coffee. <laughs> um, Dave Bautista is one big oat milk color. When he walked in the room, when he walked in the room and said, "Hello, my name's Gay Coffee," I fell out of my seat. I couldn't believe I it. I started clapping. It was awesome. There uh, is a big song that played like very much they them style. Was, I cried. It was really emotional. Just in an effort to to slightly hinge us back together. Ben Aldridge and Jonathan Groff play a gay couple and they have a daughter named Wen. And this movie, if you've gotten this far and still have no idea what it's about, Brett, what are you laughing at? <laughs> this this boy's cackling. He's hooting and hollering. <laughs> What? You have four seconds to explain what you're laughing at. <laughs> you, you forgot about the part where they named their daughter Gay, gay Coffee. <laughs> How many characters were named Gay Coffee in this yeah, movie? Can you, believe, can you believe all of them were named Gay Coffee? <laughs> you are oh, out of control. Shit. Oh my god, uh, okay. Ooh, I'm crying. Alright, we're gonna take a deep breath here, boys. We got a job to do. It represents M. Night Shyamalan's most interesting decision as a director throughout this movie to give all characters the same name. But I think it was an impactful choice and savvy social commentary on his part. Why we just made a decision to try to to try to bring it back together. There's you're, no we in this boss. This. There's no we in this. I can see Brett. He's ready to crack mm-hmm. again. Okay, I'm locked in. So Ben Aldridge and Jonathan Groff, along with their daughter Wen, live in a cabin in the woods, and some people show up. Four of them, led by Dave Bautista, who's playing Leonard. What did you say his name was? Dave Bautista. <laughs> no, was it Leonard? Yes, his <laughs> name is Leonard. It is or gay coffee. <laughs> it is really funny that uh, the hulking man that is Dave Bautista is named Leonard. Leonard. Yeah, it's unfortunate. A motherfucker but from the Big Bang Theory. Truly, oh, but Leonard proposes to this family that he has invaded upon in the woods. That they have a decision to make. They are the only people. And stop the apocalypse and that is the concept for this movie which along with I think most M. Night Shyamalan movies in theory is a really interesting concept but M. Night Shyamalan proves over and over again both in this movie and throughout his career that he is just the most mediocre person at writing dialogue and executing on concepts and so the whole time I was just thinking this is so close to being good. Like there are so many moments here that if they were just done a little bit differently would be done really well. Now, I think if you're a fan of M night Shyamalan, if you've seen his last few movies, they're pretty similar tonally. You'll probably enjoy this movie, but for us, I don't think we had that good of a time. I think there's some interesting stuff to discuss here. But it, it is a hard recommend. If you're interested in joining this conversation, feel free to watch the movie. It's not deeply boring or anything, but it's a movie. That's about all I have to say about it, at least objectively, for this. Objectively, it is a movie. And it's, you can't take that away from it. It's giving movie, serving film. Uh, so if you don't want to be spoiled, we're just going to... I can't take this part of the conversation anymore. We need to get into the the spoiler discussion or else this podcast will never end. We're too unhinged. So if you're interested in joining this part of the conversation and not being spoiled for knock at the cabin minus door, uh, feel free, go ahead, watch it. It's in theaters right now and come back when you have. It's so funny the way that my mind auto completed knock at the cabin door. Uh, Even it's actually, I had to like consciously, Think, don't say door, don't say door. But we got there. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! 
<laughs> oh, we're all so tired. Probably. Um, so one thing, <laughs> one thing that really stood out to me in this movie and sort of goes along with the theme of you're so close, M. Night, to doing something well. He often, especially in the last few years, has been getting really creative with his camera movements and his camera placements. There's some really cool camera movements in this movie. I'm thinking specifically of like a scene where the daughter, Wen, is walking in the basement and the camera follows on the floor above, on just on the floor, and it follows her movements even though you can't see her and you're tracking through the dialogue of the characters happening upstairs. Something like that's pretty cool. I've not seen that shot before in movies. It's unique. It works well. But then there are other scenes, like the opening scene of the movie between Dave Bautista and Wen, where they're just having a normal dialogue. (laughs) And the camera is six inches from their face for no reason. I was like, I just started laughing at one point. Like I looked over to Brett and I was like, are you, are we watching? Like, what is going on here? It's so Why are funny. they doing that? <laughs> that opening scene? Well, I, I guarantee you we're going to talk about it more. The opening scene is, I think by far the worst part of the movie. It is terrible. And his four decisions, like having the most, absurd close-up shot <laughs> you've ever seen for no reason uh, a close-up is used to show intricate details and emotions that an actor is expressing and neither actor in this scene is doing any kind of emotional acting they're not even supposed to be and assuming you haven't seen it the conversation that they're having is like hey do you like this and then the other one's like yeah i'm a fan of this and the other one's like all right Cool. <laughs> and <it's laughs> and like for some reason, the camera's shot. touching their noses. And also, it goes on for so long. Yep. Like, it's probably a four-minute conversation yep. that every single shot is just, it's back and forth on these two of them. Like, you can see their individual pores. It's so close to their face. I assume the intention is to, like, make it feel like a tense scene. Like, you should not trust Dave Bautista's character. Uh, as the movie will prove you shouldn't. Uh, but in reality, it makes me think that me and Dave are about to kiss each other. <laughs> like, I think he's going to lean through the movie theater and give me a smooch right on the forehead. I'd be, I'd be okay with that. I really like that guy. He seems so sweet and lovable. Outside of the Marvel universe, I had not seen him in a whole lot. But now I've since seen him in Glass Onion and this movie. And I've also seen him in a few interviews. And he seems like a really sweet guy. And he's actually like a genuinely very capable actor. And in my opinion, the best part of this movie, like he's, he's got such a physically intimidating presence just by the sheer nature of his massive size. But he's also able to convey a lot of like sympathy and like in touch with your emotions type of energy that, not a lot of actors his size. I mean, what other actors do we have his size? Dwayne Johnson? Like, The Rock isn't doing this. I, 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 I like Wait, Dave Wait, those Batista. two different people that you just mentioned? <laughs> uh, Wait, I thought we were talking about one guy. Who's, who's that guy in Airplane, that movie long ago? He's pretty big. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? <laughs> he was a mid-actor. I don't know him from anything else. Mid-actor. Crazy fucking hook shot. You've never <laughs> seen anything like it. Um. But yeah, Dave, Dave Bautista, if there's any reason to watch this movie, is a reason to watch this movie. He carries a lot of weight in the vast majority of these scenes. <laughs> he does and carry also, a lot of weight. <laughs> when he's laying back and ass on a bench press, uh, he's moving weight. But he has this opening dialogue with, with Wen, and they talk about catching grasshoppers right yeah um which i actually feel like is a a nice metaphor for the story i don't know if you guys picked up on that but it it cuts back to the grasshoppers that they leave outside in the in the jar a few times and it's it's again like a a really simple thing that m night had the the thought of like this is a good way to symbolize what the characters are doing right now like they're they're trapped in this environment and 
it's completely out of their control to to get out of. And like that's a really small thing. It's not that complex, but it serves its purpose well. And it's like it adds to my frustration with M Night as a director because it's like he has these like pretty decent moments, but then so many decisions that he makes along the way are just baffling to me. And it's it's very frustrating. So they go inside and I'm I'm even struggling to get through this because <laughs> this movie is just it's 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 a tough watch. But they explain the four people that show up that they've all had this these shared visions and the world is going to end and they lay out how it's going to end and the only way that the world will not end in the apocalypse is if somebody in this family kills another member of this family. So I think this is they a good opportunity. They can't kill themselves. They can't kill themselves. That's a good caveat. Nobody in the group can do it for them. Yep. And I think that's pretty much it. So I, I think that's a good spot to talk about this family dynamic, which is actually something else that I feel like works pretty well about this movie. Again, I think it has far more to do with just the quality of the actors being portrayed rather than M. Night Shyamalan's directing or writing because they are are not without a few stupid lines that they have to deliver. But in the scenes where they're kind of just being themselves and flashback scenes and that sort of thing, I, I really do feel the chemistry. And even though it's a non-ordinary couple, it's a, a gay couple with an adopted foreign daughter it's like i can really feel the love that these characters have for each other and so that was at least a bright spot for me they do act together well uh, as like a cohesive unit um seeing them as a family is both deeply believable and they all occupy their own roles and spaces uh that i think is done well and another example of the fact that the acting in this movie for it being not that great a movie is pretty good. And anytime I get to see Jonathan Groff, I'm going to be happy. They even let my boy sing a little bit. I don't, you two don't follow Broadway, but Jonathan Groff's a Broadway actor. And oh, I know. Most, most notably known for playing Kristoff in Frozen, which I think is very exciting. Bryce, I know Broadway. I've seen Hamilton. Oh. <laughs> and he plays a mean King George. That's true. Uh, no, he's really good in it. If we can keep talking about the family chemistry Please, for yeah. a second, I have a, a comment about that. Okay, so here's the thing. Yes, I agree. They're lovely together. I enjoy watching the family unit together. Oh, he's going to say something homophobic. Oh, I've been thinking it the whole time. <laughs> so, I... This is not, like, a new thing to movies or media in general, but, like, we're all getting a little bit smarter about, you know, how we portray gay people mm -hmm. uh and you know they were not stereotypical they weren't flamboyant in a way that like you could see uh you know an older filmmaker making them out to be great cool totally however <laughs> the gripe that i have is that we went the wrong direction in that they seem more like like just friends <laughs> that have a kid together than anything to the point that like at at near the end of the movie one of them calls the other one sweetheart and it it like jarred me because it was it to my recollection, it was the first time that they had called each other like something sweet the way that a couple would do. And I was like, oh, oh, right. Yeah, th these are two men who they, they kiss each other and have a family together. It was as if, again, Ben Aldridge and uh, Jonathan Groff, great. They did a, an amazing job. It was as if they both signed a contract that said no gay shit in this movie because they were just boys. Um, Brett, you do know you don't have to end every sentence to your significant other with baby, right? Hey, to prove that you're <laughs> this, in a relationship. This is a strong topic of the house. Someone at this table is a big baby guy. It's okay. It's okay that I have love, and that's fine that you guys are insecure about it. In, reality, right. in reality, me and Wyatt are just lonely, and Brett is in a very happy relationship. <laughs> So we're a little bit jealous of that. But I, I, I think your point it's all is jokes. fair. I think it, it is all jokes. But I, I think your point is fair, Brett. It, I, I was similarly taken aback just because I, I didn't get the vibe that they were not romantically involved until that moment. But they are not 
because of the stakes of the situation, they're not really allowed to show much intimacy in any way. And so when he calls him sweetheart at the end, I think you're right. Burp number two of the pod. It was a little bit jarring. Um, I, I, I didn't feel quite as strongly. I, I did feel like I could tell that they were a couple, but they did have the chance in the flashbacks that were thrown in throughout the movie. Um, which speaking of didn't really lead to much. They were just kind of there outside of the, the bar sequence. Yeah. Um, but I mean, even in those, there's like one instance in which they like list off why they shouldn't be parents. And then they list off why they do. And in that moment, they're like express, uh, intimacy verbally, but at no point in this movie did they so much as hug. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I was just as we were talking about this, trying to think of one instance where they even like kissed or anything. I don't, I don't think their lips ever touched, which is a little bit unfortunate. Um, statistically, uh, Bryce, your lips and my lips have touched each other more than Ben Aldridge's. That's and Jonathan Gross. 100% true. Um, have you guys kissed? I mean, we went to summer camp together, so... Um, and that does not answer the question. It, it no, does. it does. It does. Clearly, you've never been to summer camp, Wyatt. Um, We're going to move on <laughs> from talking about the two straight people on this podcast may or may not having kissed at one point or another. There was something related to this that I wanted to mention. Oh, yes. The flashbacks were one point that I wanted to to talk about. Flashbacks are a very common trope in movies and much like voiceover are very effective when done well, but 99.9% of the time they are just a crutch of the movie. And I feel like it's very applicable here. Like Wyatt said, the flashbacks do not really lead to anything. Their only real purpose is to establish the characters relationships and who these people are and what they've been through. A, Better writer is writing those bits and pieces into the script, and it works as part of the story rather than cutting away from the story every 15 minutes to give a little bit more of the characters. Like, if M. Night Shyamalan were a better writer than he is, he wouldn't need to use those flashbacks at all because they don't add anything to the plot. They're just there to show more about these characters that M. Night Shyamalan is not creative enough to flesh out in the context of the plot. There is a whole scene devoted to uh, Wen's adoption uh, in which uh, both characters are in China and it's like an instance of showcasing that uh, they have gone through trials and tribulations uh, being a gay couple because one has to say he's the brother of the other's wife. But this is all to show that Wen is adopted, um, which as the Asian child of two white men, <laughs> we knew. Uh, I don't think the point of that scene was to show that she's adopted. No, I think I mean, it was to show the process of her adoption. Yeah. I get it, but like, I don't. It's another example of just the fact that I feel like no, the, no, you're right. The the flashback sequences did not add anything yes. of value outside of runtime yes. to this and it's, movie. It's like they're establishing here's another example of the time that these two experienced prejudice, and it's like. I wish I had seen that within the context of the story that M. Night Shyamalan is trying to give us. Which I guess you get a little bit of in Rupert Grint's character, because it's made clear that there's a run-in in times past between Jonathan Groff's character... Racist Ronald. ...and his. Uh, and it's like thrown out as this whole situation in which uh, their captors may be lying, and this may be an intricate plan uh as an act of homophobia manifest and then it just kind of turns out that that was a coincidence i guess um which i don't know if that's done to like divert viewers attention and make them think that this ultimatum uh is not in fact real yeah but another example of just like a wonky detail thrown in there with no real pay they mentioned some message board like he found them on a message board Loose like 4chan reference. Yeah. I feel like that's it's like a Reddit 4chan I, I think insinuation. This is entirely possible that I'm just completely off base here, but I sort of got the vibe that within the context of these four characters' premonitions, 
It was Rupert Grint's character, Redmond, which is the most, it's a more absurd name than Gay Coffee. Um, <laughs> no, his name actually was also Gay Coffee. I don't know if you caught, they showed his ID. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, a Gay Coffee. The reveal is he was Gay Coffee. So Rupert Grint, Gay Coffee, I think within the context of the premonitions, might have been the one to discover who it was, like what family it was that was supposed to stop the apocalypse. And so it's maybe possible that he made his own choice that this couple was going to be who he targeted, but it works within the context of the premonitions. This is something that M. Night Shyamalan chooses not to explain, but I don't think the movie benefits at all from having not explained it. Like, it's not a good kind of confusing that people are going to discuss after the movie like it would a good twist. It's just like plot hole, essentially, <laughs> which is not the kind of questions you want to leave within your movie. Uh, all this being said, to any of our listeners, if you guys are having premonitions of the end of the world, uh, do not go to online message boards for help. It's... Probably not wise. It's not I did it uh, good. Once, and let's just say my experience was far too similar to this movie. We don't talk about Bryce's trip to Casper, Wyoming. I will not go back. So these characters have to kill each other off one by one, and this is another one of my gripes with this movie, where as a way to signify the next stage of the apocalypse. Each of these characters have to die, I guess. And I was just thinking, like, again, this is another example that I found where M. Night is close to doing something right. So the first time one of these characters is killed, it's Rupert Grint Gay Coffee. He puts this bag over his head and he's clearly terrified. And I think as the viewer, you probably expect, I think. He knows he's about to die right now. We don't know exactly why at this point, but he's clearly terrified. And the three remaining intruders kill him to death. And this is followed up 20 seconds later with the scene of all three of them like viscerally reacting. Because in theory, these are just normal people that just had to kill somebody. Yeah, we didn't say that earlier, but they're all like, yeah, I'm a second grade teacher. Yeah, I I clean up poop at the old windmill. Stuff Who's like that. cleaning poop at a windmill? <laughs> you missed that part. It was very integral to the story. Um, it was uh, gay coffee that was doing that. Were you guys even paying attention to this movie? Apparently Jesus. not as well as you. But Dave Batista pukes, and the one girl cries, and the one girl has like a panic attack. And I think... That is the smart decision. M. Night needs to show these characters here as normal people that just had to do something that they have never done before, something that should be deeply traumatizing. Did someone just yell outside? No. Wyatt just yawned into the microphone while you were in the middle of that statement. Uh, we're just going to keep going. Did someone yell While that is the right decision, if you watch within the context of the movie, they kill Rupert Grint and then stand all imposingly and badass over his body for 15 seconds because M. Night wants to scare the audience in that moment. And it's like <laughs> these characters flip a switch in their brains, apparently, where it's like all of a sudden... They go from these badass home intruder people to normal people. And it's like, you can't have both. They need to have that conflict before they ever make that decision to kill somebody. Like, there's no hesitation. They just do it. And then only after the fact, when M. Night wants to remind the audience, oh, yeah, don't forget, these are normal people that would have trouble here in this moment. Only then do they get that moment. And so it's like, once again, I'm going to say this 30 times through this podcast. Another example of this. Uh, if we're talking about bad direction decisions here, especially in the first 
hour in the movie when start, stuff starts popping off like this scene uh, to show that there is a sense of urgency and fear in all of the characters. They are all breathing so hard <laughs> like somebody is just around their waist squeezing them. It's like a completely unnecessary way for them to express this like turmoil emotionally that they're experiencing. But <laughs> the entire time they're like, <gasps> as they're, as they are, I'm sorry, I'm sure that sounds terrible on audio, but as they're trying to like talk and they're talking through it and you can't understand what they're saying. And that, that comes wholly to the direction of the screenplay. It's like, M. Knight wrote in this screenplay, in this moment, like these characters are out of breath and he's telling the actors, all right, you're panicking right now. Deep breaths, like you, you're struggling to breathe. It's like they, these actors are more than capable enough to show more complex emotions than just panic at this moment. But they were not given strong enough dialogue to actually convey that. Do you think that they killed off Rupert Grint first as an act of money saving? I assume I'm not that- confident Rupert Grint has that big of a, a price tag at the moment. I mean, a, again, this call. is the largest movie he's been in yeah, since Harry I mean, Potter. He's in the, like, outside of Star Wars, probably, like, the most seen series. Yeah, but we also That's, didn't know that he was in it until we saw the opening credits. Correct. That's true. It wasn't like, you know, see Rupert Grint in M. Night Shyamalan's yeah, I Knock at the Cabin. I, I think, if anything, he was killed off first because... I hate to say it. I, I love my boy Ronald Weasley, but I, I don't think he was very good in this movie. I, I, I He's playing like a, a redneck, and I heard his British accent come through like three times, and I, he only had like 15 lines of dialogue. I don't know. He looked the part. He's, he's a bit older than Ron, of course, now, and he's got a big beard, and he looks like a, a classic Philadelphia Irish racist man. For that, a minute, uh, I thought it was Ed Sheeran. It does kind of look like Ed Sheeran. There was a there was an Ed Sheeran related review on Letterboxd that I saw. It was me. But yeah, I it was that. it was. I don't know. <laughs> I'm I'm not convinced Rupert Grint is that talented of an actor at this point. Um, so maybe that's why he was killed off early. But this is our way of saying it's cheap enough to get him on the podcast. Get him on the pod, Rupert. Rupert Grint. Not after Bryce just said how Rupert, bad he was. I take it back. You're a great actor. I love you very much. I've got a Harry Potter tattoo. Come on my show, please. I think killing him off was retaliation against J.K. Rowling, personally. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a gay movie that it's it's great that the the one actor that was in a J.K. Rowling franchise is the racist one. <laughs> this podcast is taking not a the strong one. stance Sorry. against Hogwarts Legacy and will not be buying it. That's the video game, right? Yeah, yeah, but people still have beef with it because it's attached to her name and she's making uh, money. This is a different discussion, but I still like Harry Potter, but not J.K. Rowling. Uh, separate the art from the artist. Tar. Uh, we're moving on. You know she was the bad guy in Tar, right? <laughs> she was a complex character. <laughs> That's what he said about Kanye the other day. It was crazy. <laughs> uh, that did not happen. I refuse to let my name be slandered. So the the movie kind of repeats itself from here on out where we get time passing and another character has to kill themselves off and the apocalypse is brought closer and closer every time it happens. And the way that they exemplify the apocalypse coming closer and closer, it only does it one way throughout the whole movie until the very end. They turn on this newscast, which was another one of my big nitpicks. I kept audibly saying things to Brett, who was sitting next to me at the movie theater. I was like, what? This doesn't make any sense. Like, what is going on? So... The first thing that happens, uh, according to Dave Bautista, Gay Coffee, is tsunamis will come and destroy all of the coastal cities in the world. And so we get this newscast where in the matter of approximately eight seconds, the news person is like, there's been an earthquake. Watch out. And then literally seconds later, there's footage of the tsunami, which should take 
a long time to reach a coastal city <laughs> is already hitting. That was infuriating. And that happened like three times where like a inciting event. And this, this doesn't go just go for the tsunami bit. It goes for every single part of the apocalypse. An inciting event happens. And then all of a sudden they're already covering the aftermath, even though they claim that it literally just happened. Like somehow the the pandemic has already taken over entire cities, even though according to what the script is telling us, the pandemic shouldn't have even started until that character killed themselves. To be clear, there's a, a specific pandemic, not COVID-19. Yes. That is supposed to be one of the, you know, cataclysmic events. Yes. And the newscast shows, like, We've got all these deaths in, in all of these different cities from this event. But, like, in theory, if you're reading the script, these deaths should not have started weeks ago, which is what would have had to, had to have happened to be a pandemic. They should have started minutes ago, and somehow there people are already dying in hospitals. It doesn't make any sense. My fascination with inconsequential movie decisions was peaked at this point. When in the newscast for the the pandemic portion of this, they say three cities are affected. (laughs) Cape Town, like Dublin and Nashville. And I thought, who picked those? It feels completely arbitrary. I'm so curious and I want an answer on that. Um, Also in this like news sequence, they get live footage from within the tsunami. This was going to be my one final point about the news coverage. Please continue. Um, I thought... So you get this, they like cut to footage and they're like, oh, the second earthquake has hit, the tsunami's a coming. And you watch... Well, like, first off, they, they claim it just hit yeah. right now and they already have footage. And it's this like, you assume it's some gal on the beach with her iPhone um, and you see the wave get closer and closer and closer and then everybody starts running. But the footage does not cut throughout Homegirl getting taken out by the wave. It's also clearly done with a professional camera. It's also worth noting that in that scene, I recognize the beach in Oregon because my ex-girlfriend from high school posted an Instagram picture there. Whoa. And I thought that was very funny. I recognized the big rock in the background. I thought... The big rock. I knew where this is. This is funny. It's coastal Oregon. Yeah, that rock was indeed big. But uh, yeah, it's like that that whole thing, there was actually just nothing accurate about it. Like, they were not even attempting to imitate phone footage and that that was like that's something that Shyamalan's been doing a lot in his more modern movies like the visit uses Skype calls a lot and all of the Skype calls are like 4k perfect audio <laughs> it's like that's that's just not how technology works M. Night have you ever used technology in your life before isn't that the movie where like mashed potatoes get shoved in a camera and like the Skype camera doesn't work anymore yeah yeah it's it's ridiculous but um also that's not how tsunamis work uh, I thought that that was how tsunamis worked when I was like four, and then I grew up and realized tsunamis are just very fast rising water levels. Uh, it's not a big wave like that, but clearly, I don't, I don't know if M Night doesn't know that or if he just chose to ignore reality to make a cool shot. But it wasn't even that cool, M Night. You didn't do it right. No, you're right. Like the rising water levels uh, is a tsunami. Uh, but in the movie, it showcased uh, something called a T-tsunami, um, and that's what the wave is. Like, they spelled it out, like, t- like T-tsunami. Oh, yeah. oh, so tsunami, like S-O-O-N? Yeah. Tsunami. Yeah, that's when the water goes up. But oh, okay. The, the T-tsunami okay. is when the wave comes. I, I can understand. Thank that. you for the clarification, Wyatt. Was, was uh, tsunami studies one of your 46 majors? It was a minor three years in college. <laughs> it's a minor during my time at uh, Utah State University, which was all of one week. But you uh, went to Utah State for a week. I was enrolled. They didn't have housing. This is like not a bit. That's actually true. Every single day, surprised. we find out a new college that Wyatt was enrolled in. It's Wyatt not was enrolled in forty-five colleges. Brett's had forty-five jobs. On God, I've been enrolled in three. I've applied to forty-one. That is the real number. So the. The movie continues, like I said, on the the same pattern here, and people die, and more events happen, and 
Jonathan Groff's character is is clearly becoming a little bit more prone to believing than his husband is. And I actually like that the characters kind of keen in on that. They realize that his character is possibly a little bit more susceptible and they, they really try to, they pretty much only talk to him at a certain point in the movie because they realize that the other guy's a lost cause. And so he's, he's slowly, his defenses are wearing down and it's, it's becoming clearer and clearer that he might believe in what they're saying. And then unless you guys have anything else to say, we can kind of get to the, the end of the, the movie here. Yeah, please. Go for it. Fire away. You look like you were about to burp, which would have been burp number three. Can you give it to us? I'm going to count it. Burp number three. So they escape once or twice, and there's fights, and it's all just a lot of movie bullshit that is not particularly compelling. But God, I hate movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know why I even have a podcast. Movies suck. Um I miss back in the good old days when it was 26 pictures put together very quickly <laughs> and you could watch a monkey ride a tricycle. Or maybe a guy on a horse. God. But I yearn for the 1910s. Dave Bautista is at this point the last man standing, implying the time is basically here. Once he's dead, the apocalypse is here. So he's like, hey, we got no time left. I'm I'm going to kill myself here. And... You guys will have a couple minutes to make your big decision, which means take one of each other's lives or else the world is going to end. So Dave Bautista takes his own life. Very sad. Love that guy. And we get what I think is is my favorite non-Dave Bautista acting moment of this movie where the, the two husband and husband character are sort of fighting over who's going to kill who, because I guess at this point they both believe that the world is actually ending because now they've they've really, like, seen it. It's not just on the TV. Like, they actually, in an absurd shot, just see a plane fall out of the sky, <laughs> even though they're in the middle of the woods and all of the planes should have fallen, like, a couple hours previously. Again, if we're following what the plot is telling us. I don't think that was too absurd. There's no reason that there couldn't have been a plane overhead, a flyover well, state, it, and also they didn't all have to fall out of the sky at the same well, time. Well, it was implied they're all falling, like, around the same time. It, it's not that big a deal, but uh, both characters now believe, and Jonathan Groff is basically like, hey, I'm at peace here. I can picture the great things that you and our daughter are going to do. I'm not scared. You can kill me. And it was, I I feel like it was, it wasn't an incredible scene, but it was relatively powerful. But all I could think about in this scene was how Ben Aldridge, who plays Jonathan Groff's husband, looks just like our landlord Aaron in the, (laughs) in these scenes. Uh, it was kind of alarming. I don't know if either of you noticed that. Did not uh, occur to me. But I was like, shout out Aaron. Though. I was like, Aaron, how'd you get an Asian daughter? What are you doing in Philadelphia? It was quite strange. Oh yeah, no, I'm looking at it now, and I am. I can see it. That makes sense. Two handsome gentlemen. But yeah, they they run away, and they go to a diner. Ben Aldridge and his his daughter. Diner. A diner. <laughs> And uh, they confirm that, hey, all of this is actually happening. All these other characters are living the same reality that they are. This wasn't a fever dream. The world was actually ending. So they really did save the world. Can we talk about how it is never explained at any point in the movie why the world is ending, how it has been decided that it's these people? There's no context provided on that, and that upsets me. So, yes, I think you're totally valid in that. I That's actually something someone says right before they invalidate you. Yes. I actually I, I think I like it. The movie does not I think it would have been worse had M Knight attempted to justify it. Cause I just know he would have done a poor job. And so I think he's just like Yeah, this is this is happening. This is the world that we live in. And I, I feel like a lot of the best unique concepts 
kind of just do that. Like they don't bother to establish the the rules. Like we're we're in a movie universe. I'm able to at some point just accept this. It's it's when you try to give absurd rules that the filmmaker wants me to think about that don't actually make sense that I have an issue with it. The whole time that I was watching this, have you guys seen um, 10 Cloverfield Lane? Mm-hmm. I was getting very similar vibes and I think both movies could have been made better uh, if <laughs> yeah. they just uh, had stuck to the fact of like you are trapped in the house or someone is trapped in the house with you and you are held captive, figure it out from there. Like obviously not what we're reviewing right now, but 10 Cloverfield Lane has this weird payoff where the main character finally escapes and then there's aliens for some reason. Yeah, And it feels like, this movie could be very suspenseful and very powerful if it just turns out that these folks are lunatics. I think, honestly, in my eyes, it would have been better for that. I think you're probably right. And yeah. an instance in, like, the the final decision of which character has to die uh, of the, the two husbands um, would be made so much more impactful if it turns out there was no payoff there. Like, they have sacrificed everything for nothing. That wouldn't make for a very fun twist, though. No, but, like... Twists don't have to be fun. No, you're you're absolutely yeah. right. But M Knight wouldn't do yeah, that. Yeah, there's no world where he would do that, unfortunately. But uh, I, I think you're 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 valid for that. While we're chilling on the the ending of the movie, I do need to we talked about at the beginning of the podcast the whether or not there was a twist yeah, in this movie. I was just going to bring this up. Uh do we think that the the attempt to be like, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse counts as a twist? I'd say yes, but they also just like don't provide anything else. And then they also prove that these people are real folks who have like normal lives. So if that was their attempt at a payoff or uh, M Knight's attempt at a twist, he then quickly invalidates his own statement by proving these are just like second grade teachers and line cooks. These are not death incarnate. Yeah. Brett, I'll let you go, but I, I, that was going to be my response to your initial statement there of like, he doesn't explain anything because I think that that is the only explanation that we as an audience get that potentially these are the four horsemen of death. But Brett, do you have any thoughts on that? I am chilling. <laughs> I am chilling on that topic. This guy is so sleepy. I am um, ready to conk. So in regards to the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that's, of course, a biblical reference. And that's that's where. Also, Christian Johnny Knight Cash reference yes uh that's where christian m night shows up but i was under the impression that the four horsemen were conquest war famine and death but within the context of this script they're like what were they like nurturing and it was qualities of human beings which is a a nitpick for me that um i believe it's i think one of the two leads says uh, in a revelation, they're like, oh, I, I've i just realized, you know, the four people, they embody all of the qualities of human beings. And then he labels four qualities of human beings as if that's all of them. <laughs> yeah. And then says, they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But then, Those like you not, just said, they're yeah. not the qualities that he says. They're not the names of the horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah. And also the horsemen would bring forth the apocalypse with open arms. Not they be would trying not, to, yeah. Yeah, prevent it. It's, uh, it's Man, confusing. The more we talk about this movie, the more <laughs> I thought they just threw darts at a wall with ideas posted noted to them. And then they said, sure, that's what we'll go with. Yep. And M. Night does that a lot, unfortunately. But I, I so when this movie ended, I threw my arms up in the air and I said, holy cow. M. Knight did it. He had the maturity to not put a twist in a modern thriller, which he has not been able to do in a very long time. And everyone in um, the room stood up and clapped, and yeah. then they subscribed to the Lasso the Moon podcast. Um, everyone was like, God, that guy is really smart. Um, they also said you're cute and funny, too. I don't know if yeah, you heard that it was, part. It was really good for my ego. Yeah. but Good mustache. I, I don't know if... I would call that a twist. I think it's more of just like an explanation. I don't think it has a large enough bearing on the plot to count as a twist. I don't know. It 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 more just feels like an explanation to me. I don't know. If if you as the audience member went and saw this movie with the expectation that you would get a classic 
M. Night Shyamalan twist. I, it's not present in this movie, certainly. There is an explanation that is maybe a little bit of a revelation, and it's interesting, but I don't know. It wasn't crazy. It's like, it, normally M. Night twists are big and crazy, but they don't actually make much sense if you think about them, whereas this doesn't make much sense, and it's also not that crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that insightful comment. There's a reason we have a podcast. We know what to say. Is it sleepy time soon? Yeah, so I'm 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 gonna end with I left this movie. I, I Same. <laughs> we we all left this movie. And if there's one thing that I enjoy from watching any movie, it's trying to figure out what is the creator, what is the author of this movie trying to tell me as the audience? And I'm really, really struggling to figure out what the hell the point of this was. Was it literally just to be like, hey, the apocalypse is coming? It, like, it felt like M. Night was literally just capitalizing on the fact that we all just came off of a pandemic and felt like the world was ending and was like, let me make a scary movie about that. Like, wh what is he trying to tell me? I didn't get anything out of this movie. I feel like it was like a an attempt to be like, wow, look at the power and unity of family and love. And then one of them shoots the other one, I guess is, <laughs> is an act of love. Is an act of love. For humanity, yeah, though, for not humanity. for each other. It's like, which, uh, what the hell? I mean, I could go into that. We're trying to go to bed, which I am a strong proponent of. But, it is 1.42 a.m. Um, on a weeknight. Yeah, I got, I got important. I got an important day tomorrow. I need sleep. But if there's if there's a payoff or like a, a message there, I guess it's some commentary and the power of a family unit. Yeah. But it's bad commentary. Yeah, it's like if it's commentary on the power of a family unit, it's not creatively showing us the strength of this family unit. If it's commentary on the quality of humanity, the only humans we see in this movie that are not the core family unit are, yes, supposed to be representative of these four good traits of humanity, but essentially all we see them do is kill each other. Like, <laughs> we don't really see these good traits in action outside of one or two, like, forced-in moments. Like, I'm just, I'm not compelled by that at all. Point is, just like straight white couple, gay couple can also adopt Asian baby. And... Name her Gay Coffee. <laughs> and just like any other God-fearing American, they can name her Gay Coffee. And that's a right that we all have. Amen. So from one Gay Coffee to another to another, we're wishing you the sweetest of sleeps, the best of good nights. Wait, wait, the co-host <laughs> doesn't get to close the show. No, I mean, you can. There's just a lot... There's more to the outro of this podcast than just saying. <laughs> God, I was just starting. Uh, I was trying to kickstart going to bed. Thank you very much for listening at this point. This was an unfortunate movie to talk about, but it's likely going to be a popular one that people actually see. So uh, got an hour seven of content out. Of yeah, this, we we sure. did milk this puppy dry. I love talking about how we're like this is a bad movie, but people are going to see it, it, it because is it makes us sound pretentious. Yeah. But the thing is, is this movie is bad, and if you <laughs> like it, you're wrong. No, I I do want to emphasize we as a podcast do not feel this is a very well done movie, but. If A, you watch this movie, B, you liked this movie, and C, you're listening to this podcast, thank you very much. We want to encourage people to see movies. Ultimately, at the end of the day, art, such as films, are a subjective medium. If you enjoy this, good. We're glad. We did not join our discussion. Let us know on Instagram. Type in the little comment section. What you felt was good about this movie. At Last of the Moon Pod. Last of the Moon Pod on all of our socials, which is basically just Instagram and Twitter, and we only use Instagram right now. Give us a follow. Leave five stars on whatever podcast streaming platform you are listening to. Bars. I don't know why I'm Bars. talking like this, but I'm going to keep going. Bars. No, I'm not. 
Good so, night. Thank you for listening. You're supposed to say, uh, I love you. I, I love know. you. I was going to get there. I wanted to hear if you guys had anything else to say. Um, on the basis of our social media, quick shout out to Lasso the Moon fan, number one uh, Instagram commenter, Madeline Crawford. Uh, we see you and we hear you. Thank you, Madeline. You clearly listen to the podcast because you always comment relevant things. We appreciate you, Madeline. Good night. We love you very much. Hopefully it's earlier than 2 a.m. wherever you're listening to this. We love you. Good night. Love you. Love you. Sorry this was so unhinged. Good night. <laughs>